This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. I am your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When you're not joining me on this podcast to talk about Cape Fear history, you can find my byline on coverage of the local film and television industry, my weekly TV Hunter column, and more over at starnewsonline.com. This week, we're flipping to a new chapter in our history book of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures for the penultimate episode of the season. We've touched on a lot of grim and dark topics on this podcast so far, but with the approach of spring in the coming week, I wanted to bask in the sun a little bit and head out to Wrightsville Beach to tell the storied history of one of the region's most legendary attractions. As always, I will share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle into a beach chair and dig your feet into the sand for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we reconstruct the legacy of Lumina Pavilion, Wrightsville Beach's Palace of Light. Take a moment, if you will, to picture Wrightsville Beach stripped of all of its development, its homes, its roads, and just left with the surf and the sand. Miles of coast, undisturbed by widespread human touch and advancement. A refuge not unlike it was when Captain Kidd supposedly buried his treasure on Money Island just off the coast. A quiet place, interrupted only by the rhythmic sound of waves crashing on the sand. Save for a few dinghy fishing shacks, this is how you would have found the now popular tourist destination just a few years before the Civil War. In fact, it wasn't until 1853 that the first substantial structure was built on the island, a small building known as the Banks House that served as a meeting spot for the men of the Carolina Yacht Club. Shortly after the war between the states, Interest grew in the quiet beach, then known as the Banks. So the Wilmington and Coast Turnpike Company began building a toll road to Wrightsville Sound, which was completed in 1876. The roadway was made of straw and oyster shells, which were crushed down and compacted over time to create a solid path. And progress came quick after the path was laid. A steam train trestle was installed over what is now the Intracoastal Waterway and connecting to the hammocks, which is now Harbor Island. A footbridge allowed guests to then walk to the beach, and eventually the trestle would stretch over Banks Channel right to the coast, delivering passengers to Ocean View Beach, the name the beach was given before Wrightsville Beach was adopted. Beachgoers would frolic in the sand, cast a fishing rod out into the water, and dance in the afternoon air. Bathing suits of the day were starkly more conservative than today's standard beach attire, with most partially made of wool, 
that might have been an uncomfortable material to wear on a hot summer day, but the same fun was still to be had. Despite the intense development that would come to Wrightsville Beach and the region as a whole, the joy of a day in the sand and sun has largely retained its simple pleasures over the decades. The town of Wrightsville Beach was incorporated on March 6, 1899, and electrified trolley cars would soon begin carting more and more people to the destination. The ride became the most popular route in Wilmington, with a round-trip ticket costing just 25 cents and included an all-day bathing suit rental. The 80-foot beach car, as they were called, would take about 45 minutes to reach its destination either way, a commute not unlike the journey today, if you're unlucky enough to get caught in traffic on Oleander Drive or Military Cutoff Road. To better serve the growing number of passengers, the island eventually had seven train stations where guests could exit at their leisure, all of which were within walking distance of the burgeoning community of hotels, restaurants, cottages, and fishing shacks. With construction and development booming on the island, its first landmark structure would soon become its biggest draw. The Lumina was built in 1905 by the Tidewater Power Company, which owned the trolley system and was then presided over by Hugh McRae, the prominent landowner. McRae's legacy is monumental in the region, although it must be given a disclaimer considering his conspiratorial involvement in the Wilmington Race Riot of 1898. Nevertheless, McRae was instrumental in bringing electricity to southeastern North Carolina, and there was no brighter shining example of that than Lumina Pavilion. The purpose of Lumina was simple. Give people from all over the region, and maybe even those farther away, a reason to hop on the trolley and head to the beach. The land that housed Lumina was located on the southern end of the island, just a few feet from Station 7 on the trolley line. The plot of land is said to have been purchased by Tidewater for just $10. The whole structure would cost between $5,000 and $7,000 to build, a process that took less than five months. A three-story wooden mammoth, it was initially 300 feet long and nearly covered from the trolley tracks to the water. Its centerpiece was a second-floor ballroom with a 50-foot by 70-foot dance floor that would become iconic for late nights and good music. It was elevated about two feet off the ground to give the effect of a stage that invited anyone to perform. On its lower level, Lumina offered a bowling alley, restaurant, ladies' parlor, bathhouse, concession booths, and even slot machines. Eager to show off views of the beach, the building was wrapped in a veranda on its second floor. In the summer, the pavilion would host sporting events, foot races, talent shows, and contests for anything the guest could dream up. Archive photos show sack races and even men facing off in a greased-up pole climbing challenge. To show off the latest in electricity technology that Tidewater offered the region, the structure was to be lined with thousands of lights, drawing people in as an incandescent beacon of entertainment. In a sense, it was like drawing moths to a flame. Having officially opened its doors on June 3, 1905, 
Lumina would soon start hosting thousands of people from far and wide every summer. In its first two decades, upwards of 5,000 people would spend July 4th each year at Lumina. Guests could dance the night away with a live orchestra, slip away to the restaurant for a romantic dinner, or even run out to the beach for a moonlit walk. Everyone who was anyone went to Lumina. And because admission was cheap in those early years, it was within reach of both the rich and the lower middle class. But it wasn't without its rules. After all, this was a time of decorum, and societal standards dictated what young people could do within the walls of Lumina. In his book, Land of the Golden River, author Lewis Philip Hall notes that men had to wear a coat and tie to be allowed on the dance floor. No alcohol was allowed, even though some people would sneak off and take a few sips from a flask hidden in the sand outside. And men could not break in on a couple to request a dance from a young lady unless already acquainted with her. And despite what music might tell them, dancing cheek to cheek was not allowed. Four years after it opened, Tidewater expanded Lumina to more than 25,000 square feet on its second floor and nearly doubled the size of the dance floor. For the wallflowers in the crowd, or just those exhausted from hours of dancing, the hall was outlined with a promenade where you could sit back and take it all in. It cannot be understated how influential and important the dance hall became to the region. When they arrived, guests would ascend the wide staircase outside the pavilion and enter a room alive with the sound of laughter, conversation, and legendary big band musicians. New dance moves of the era, like the rag, the castle walk, and shag, shook the hardwood floor, which was waxed and polished every week. Young couples could lock eyes across the dance floor and eventually meet in the middle to share their first dance. More than a few local residents of the time have traced the start of relationships and even marriages to nights at Lumina. One of Lumina's signature attractions was its outdoor movie theater, which featured a movie screen that sat atop tall pilings out in the water. Seats were set in rows on the terrace, allowing people to take a break from the dancing and revelry to catch early silent films featuring the likes of Charlie Chaplin. Unfortunately, once sound films, or talkies, became popular, the audio craze was overpowered by the excitement and the waves, so the attraction was shuttered in 1920. If the beach got too crowded, guests need just walk over the bridge to the sound side of Lumina, where swings, slides, and boats provided plenty of amusement in the water. Lumina would prove to stand the test of time, at least for a while. It stood through two world wars, prohibition, the birth of several new music styles and their dance moves, and served not just families of the day, but multiple generations to come. At times, its light was dimmed, sometimes literally. The glow of the pavilion was its signature, a point of reference for sailors trying to find the shoreline. But as we discussed in last week's episode, that was the last thing the region and the government wanted during World War II, a time when a blackout was enforced on the coast in response to the threat of enemy submarines. So during the war, Lumina's lights were stifled. After the war, times were a-changing, and Lumina's role in the community wasn't as towering 
as it used to be. The building was sold during the war, and its upkeep wasn't as strict under the new owners. The lights that once outlined the building weren't as bright anymore, and the beach cars that once delivered guests to the island were closed in 1940 after a direct road allowed automobiles to make the journey instead. Big bands were becoming a thing of the past, and with their decline, so too were the weekly dances that drew in crowds. In 1954, Hurricane Hazel ravaged the coast, destroying homes and buildings all around Lumina. The sturdy landmark, however, stood firm and only surrendered one important feature to the storm. Its famous rooftop sign that spelled out Lumina in six-foot-tall block letters outlined in light bulbs. New owners tried to revive interest in the big band sound that Lumina was built on, but it was a fruitless effort, drowned out by the roars of the jukebox and rock and roll. North Carolina Azalea Festival events and even a Miss North Carolina pageant, were held at Lumina in the 1950s to try and rebrand it as a destination event space. In the 1960s, another wave of new owners opened a bar called the Upper Deck that served beer and alcohol, a far cry from Wrightsville Beach's days as a dry town in the 1910s. But with the arrival of the 1970s, Lumina had fallen into disarray. The town condemned it in 1972, and demolition began on April 7, 1973, nearly 70 years after it opened. In Land of the Golden River, Hall begins his first of many stories about Lumina with this declaration to younger generations that will never get to experience the pavilion's heyday. Quote, I'm sorry, you have really missed something. For Lumina was not only a sparkling summer pavilion, but it also represented a way of life that is gone forever. End quote. The unceremonious end of Lumina Pavilion is in stark contrast to the high wattage at which it once shined. Like most of the stories we talk about on this podcast, the legacy and the memories of Lumina far outweigh its loss. The Cape Fear region is and will likely always be powered by tourism. And Lumina Pavilion is one of the greatest examples of how grand its influence can be. A mecca of its day and the site of intense jubilation and energy, it cannot simply be washed away like a sandcastle in high tide. It's etched into the memory of the Cape Fear. And the only shame now is that it's not still standing, because if its walls could talk, they would certainly have stories to tell. Joining me now is Madeline Flagler, who is the executive director of the Wrightsville Beach Museum of History. Thank you so much for joining me, Madeline. Thank you. So we're going to talk about Lumina, and anyone who's ever really seen a picture of Lumina uh, is kind of, at least myself, I guess I can speak personally, is kind of impressed with just how beautiful and and almost nostalgic it looks looking at it now. Um, And it's hard to read an account of Wrightsville Beach without filling the influence of Lumina for, for so many years. Why was it such a big part of Wrightsville Beach's history and, and remains to be so today? It was designed that way. At that time period, right at the turn of the century, there were beach resorts sprouting up all in the United States as well as in England and, and France. 
and they all seem to be accommodated by the development of disposable income for a larger group of people, middle-class leisure time, and um, cheap, reliable transportation. So as soon as they could get a trolley or a train to the beach, people started coming. But it was not a tradition. So one of the things that they did was they, for instance, at Wrightsville Beach, they put two big hotels, they spaced them out, one right at the very first trolley stop, one at the middle, and then at the very last trolley stop, they put the Lumina Pavilion, which they thought would draw a wider group of people. And at the Lumina, they had the downstairs area, um, which had a bathhouse, so you could rent a locker, rent a bathing suit. Um, They had picnic tables so that you could bring your picnic lunch, but you could also um, purchase food there. They had a bowling alley. They had a shooting gallery. Out front, they had a movie screen. And then later on in the afternoon and into the evening, they had the upstairs that had the big ballroom. So it was designed to draw people. At that time, the technology was something like a pavilion. So they built them lots of places. The main way to listen to music was through live music. And so they would build these big pavilions so many people could come listen to live music, and have some kind of entertainment. Well, and you also have to think about it being a different time where your entertainment was to gather with people. It was, it was. to, as you say, listen. You know, the best way to listen to music was was live, live. which seems so crazy now, except for the occasional concert you might go to. They um, didn't even have, I mean, they had rudimentary radio, but nothing right. like Um, what we have today, or even what they had just another 20 years later. No phonographs, so no records. And and it's so very different from what we have today. There are young people and and adults who walk around listening to music all day long, and that is a completely new experience for human beings. That was me earlier today. I was walking around (laughs) downtown Wilmington listening to music. So it, it was an experience. It was built to offer an experience and I would say that that's what kind of keeps its memory alive because those experiences were written down. They were told to people. They were shared through generations. Um, I mean, is that the case? And you work with the museum. I mm-hmm. imagine people come in and, and have heard about it or you hear people who who went there. Um, Until a couple of years ago, we had um, a woman who did not grow up here, but her grandparents were here. And so she came every summer and she talked about going to children's night, getting on the trolley, riding to the Lumina Pavilion, getting off with her family. The kids would get all dressed up. They would learn how to foxtrot. They would learn how to waltz. They would have dance contests. They would have games. And so you do have people that still have within their memory um, going to the Lumina Pavilion. And then the next generation up, we have a woman who volunteers on Friday afternoons, and her family at one point owned the Lumina Pavilion. She grew up across the street. So she has memories as well. So you have, you still have it within people's memory. Absolutely. And it was such a special place. There was nothing like it anywhere near here. Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina. So this was it. Yeah, this was, this was the place to be. Uh, <laughs> yes. So what kind of people would have been able to access Illumina? Who would have been uh, the, the standard guest? Um, because I read in several places that because it was free at the beginning, but then mm-hmm. it, it had a small charge as, as the years went on. That made it accessible to, obviously, the, the wealthier set in Wilmington, but also people who were middle class. Right. The other thing that um, really accommodated um, attendance at the at Lumina was the fact that the streetcar went down and started very close to where the train station is. 
um, was then, mm-hmm. which is currently where Cape Fear Community College is. Yeah. So you were able to come from all over the country, come on the train, or from small towns in eastern North Carolina, catch the train, come into Wilmington, transfer to the streetcar. And those would be both the wealthy people that were going to stay a week or a month at the beach, but also these people that did not have that much time or disposable income, and they would come and spend the day, bring their picnic. Now, the wealthier people that came on the train and over on the trolley, they would stop at their big hotels, and they would get unpacked there. There was their own dance band for their... um, for the dinner dances at the hotel. But then after that, they would ride the trolley down to Lumina and go to the big, big dance hall, go upstairs to the ballroom. You could not come if you were not properly dressed. And so it did, you did need to have some modicum of, of um, wealth. It sounds like basically they would, uh, as, as to use a current term, basically tailgate at their own hotels where they would, you know, kind of get ready to go out, you know, mm-hmm. maybe enjoy some music, a few drinks, and then they would go to Lumina. Then they would go to Granted, Luma. I did read, though, that, that Riceville Beach was a dry town for, uh, for several years. Yes. It, it, I don't think that stopped people. <laughs> Just like prohibition no, didn't and, stop and people. And there are people that will talk about going underneath Lumina and putting their, their bottles under there because the sand was such an easy place to hide things. Exactly. Um, everyone's still sneaky. It doesn't matter the decade. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that you will notice if, if you look at photos from Lumina, um, it, they're very white crowds, and it's because it was the time of segregation. Yes. And so African-Americans were not allowed to enjoy the, the amenities of Lumina. No. The trolley would have been segregated. African-Americans were not allowed to simply walk on the boardwalk um, unless they were doing business of some sort or taking care of children or one thing or another. They couldn't go into the ocean unless it was after dark, even though they may have been staying overnight in accommodations, both either at the hotels or the restaurants or at people's homes as the serving class. So they were, in many ways, the backbone of Lumina. They were the ones who were doing the work that allowed this wonderful place to happen. And Wrightsville Beach with its big hotels, if you look at pictures of the Seashore Hotel, all of the waiters, all the wait staff are African-American. I'm sure that all the cooks were as well. Mm-hmm. And so you had a large number, but there are, are very, very few photographs of African-Americans at Wrightsville Beach. And I think that to some degree that continues today. There were other beaches north and south of here that African-Americans um, frequented, but there's not the tradition of coming to Riceville Beach the way there is either at North, North Topsail or further south. Well, and Lumino was, even in, in promotional materials, was a beacon, but it wasn't a beacon for everyone, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Music, though, was something that seemed to bring uh, a lot of people into Lumina. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what do we know about the time in Lumina with music, because there were a lot of big names of the time that would mm-hmm. go and play there. I mean, what are the, some of the people that might have brought their big band or their orchestra to Lumina? Um, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey came and played. Kay Kaiser would come. He was a um, native of Rocky Mount. He came and played. There was Guy Lombardo. Um, and later on, there were a few rock and roll people that came. Um, we also have we have another volunteer that comes in and talks about as a kid going down to Lumina and seeing Jerry Lee Lewis. So, you know, you have this broad range. Absolutely. But music has always been um, a real focus there. And part of that had to do with its acoustics. In the 1910 renovation, they brought in an expert, 
and really refined the acoustic qualities of um, Lumina Pavilion, the big dance, the ballroom. And it was known to the very end as being having excellent acoustics at a time because it was developed at a time before any kind of amplification. Absolutely. I mean, the best way to listen to music again at the time was there, so they wanted to make it sound good. So tell me this. I've heard rumors that shag, the you know the, the dance to beach music, uh, was invented at uh, Lumina. Is there, any, um, is there any truth to that? You know, some of those things are very, very hard to determine. Um, there is a book, um, and Philip Lewis Hall talks about the fact that um, he and his friend Julia had heard about the shag and they really were started working on some a different kind of dance. And that they introduced it at Lumina um, in 1928, to the point where in 1932 Lumina actually had its first shag contest. I don't know that that means that it was originated there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Carolina Beach and Myrtle Beach will hotly contest that. <laughs> but I do think that the newest crazes came to. Wilmington and came to Riceville Beach per- first. That's where the Lumina Pavilion was. That was the music place. And Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina at the time. People weren't going to Raleigh or to Charlotte to listen to music or to, to play it. You know, they came to Riceville Beach. And so, for instance, when the Castle Walk was developed, it was developed in New York. But two um, of the young people that went to New York and learned it, they came back to Wilmington to present Castle Walk at the Lumina Pavilion. Well, and that was the whole point of Lumina, to, to be kind of a premier entertainment where you would go and be able to dance the newest dance craze or learn the newest dance craze. And so, you know, even if, you know, the Castle Walk or, or Shag or um, one of them was the Rag I read mm-hmm. about, uh, they weren't, might not have been invented there, but they certainly were made popular because of places like Lumina. Right. And you had, you know, you would, these people came from New York to come to the Lumina, partly because there were thousands of people there um, that she, they could expose it to. What, what kind of was the root cause or causes of the downturn of Lumina? You know, it was so influential for so many years, but it seems to have really changed its role in the community uh, after World War II. It really suffered from the same causation of that led to pavilions being torn down everywhere. There was a pavilion at Greenville Park. There was a pavilion on Harbor Island, just over the bridge from from Wrightsville Beach. Wow. It there were p- lots of pavilions everywhere, and again, um, because of the technology was very simple, they, people needed to gather in, in one place, um, large groups of people. And so when the radio became popular, when, when records became popular, when you know, this technology of the music really was dispersed, you didn't need one central place for entertainment. So they had a huge building. It was at, the, at Riceville Beach where land prices were going up. It was, became more and more valuable. And I think the most likely thing is that historic preservation had not gotten to the beach at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Just a few years later, the Cotton Exchange would be turning a very different kind of building into a whole series of shops. And I think if you look at at what the Lumina Pavilion was at that time, it was so huge. But if you looked at it and thought, well, (laughs) underneath you'd have all kinds of parking. Um, The main floor could have all kinds of shops. You've got all this 
huge deck space, 6,000 feet of deck space. And you'd have inside, you had the, the ballroom, but you could put in restaurants and all kinds of little shops. And then put in condos for yeah. people. It would have been an, an extraordinary mixed use. But I think that nobody was there ready to put that kind of money in. There was a lot of protest. Um, and many people fully understood that they were losing something very valuable. But nobody was in a position to do anything differently. They knew that they could tear tear Lumina down and build some condos, and that's just what they did, and the condos are still there right beside Oceanic Restaurant. I've, I've obviously, I, I read a good amount leading up to this episode, um, and I've heard stories before, but even just from, from my tangential relationship with it, it's such a shame it's still not there. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it's like for someone who works with Wrightsville Beach history and just any historian in this area to... It's just such a loss, it seems like. Well, when people come through the museum, the two two of the things they say the most often, why did they get rid of the trolley, and why did they tear down Lumina? <laughs> and, you know, all of that had to do with changing times. Mm-hmm. The trolley demise was from the fact that people were all owning their own automobiles. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it seemed more convenient and more more helpful to come in your own car, come and go as you please, not have to worry about when the trolley was coming. You didn't have to worry about a schedule, um, but come and go in your car. So they pulled the tracks up, sold it for scrap metal, and paved the streets. As far as Lumina went, if they had the idea of at that time period, um, it was torn down in 73, at that time period, you know, to put something similar to what had brought Lumina there, which would have been the dance hall. At that point, that was a discotheque. And that was not something that the people in Wrightsville Beach were really interested in. This very small island have this huge building that was a discotheque. Though I will say that I read a few accounts of discotheque. (laughs) I read a few accounts that it was so sturdy that it did take a little bit to actually tear it down. I mean, it survived several hurricanes, lots of wear and tear, but uh, even in the end, uh, it put up a little bit of a a fight. That um, that good old Cape Fear Pine, (laughs) it was um, it it was tough to the point where many people collected the lumber from that was torn out from the Lumina Pavilion, and for the few years when the museum was first open, we actually sold um, frames that were made from Lumina wood. Oh wow! And the there's actually a desk next door at the visitor center that was built from Lumina wood. So there was there was a fair amount of that left around. It was not falling apart. Well, that's that's <laughs> a heck of a, a keepsake if you were able to right. get those. As we kind of move away from it, you know, we do lose those voices who were who went to Lumina. But do you feel like the legacy of Lumina has persisted because of, you know, the many stories told and the pictures we have? I mean, so many things we do on this podcast, we don't have many pictures of because Mm -hmm. they're so old. But Mm -hmm. there are so many pictures of Lumina. I mean, do you think that kind of keeps what really was special about Lumina alive? I think it does. We continue to use the Lumina Pavilion for names of places, yeah. and um, it's the, you know, the, the street is, of course, there that runs the length of the island. But the photographs show a building that is the definition of an icon, yeah. um, and it's uh, that has 
that will continue for quite a while, um, even though, as you've pointed out, the the voices are, are becoming less and less. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stories are great. It, it's fascinating to think about such a different time. You know, you can go to a bar, you can go to a club here in Wilmington. Uh, it's, it's a very temporary experience. You know, mm-hmm. you're going just for the night. But Lumina was... Something else. It was. Yeah. It was. It was something else, and that that seems to be what comes through. Right. It was a true multi-use building. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Madeline. I really appreciate it, and I would encourage everyone to go uh, out to uh, Wrightsville Beach Museum of History. Uh, I went and took a tour of my uh, myself. They've got uh, several artifacts from Lumina, mm-hmm. several um, articles and articles of clothing, and yeah. um, even a model of the island that includes uh, a, a cast right. of, the, of the pavilion. And, and as of Thursday, we will have in our bookshop a new novel written by Mary Flynn, about the Lumina, well, set in the 1920s and 30s. So well, you you we're can... very excited to have this new thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we said, it continues to live on. It does. Absolutely. That's it for this week's episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Lumina Pavilion. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with our second season finale where we will explore another tale from the history books. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email me at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. I'd also encourage all of our listeners to join our Facebook group, where you can ask questions about our episodes and everyone can share their thoughts and memories of the region's history. In that group, I will also be posting extra content as the seasons progress. This week, I'm going to be sharing plenty of pictures from Lumina Pavilion. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Finally, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram, You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish, and this episode was recorded at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington, which has been gracious enough to host us this season. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, Get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.